Let's pray first. Father, I want to pray for Mike Hall, who is the man that, that Drew met at the airport and had a wonderful conversation with. Thank you for your sovereignty and bringing him together with Drew and, and the fact that Drew prayed that before knowing that that was his seat. We know that you didn't magically change the seat uh, number. Well, maybe you did. <laughs> maybe you did. You, you could do anything. But I just, I, I, my assumption is that you didn't, but you gave Drew a heart for that and then showed him that you had already had a heart for Drew for that and gave Drew that heart so that he would do that and pray that and then desire to have that conversation. And I think it's encouraging for us all, not because Drew is, uh, that's what Drew does for our church, but because he just was just like us, just chilling, just wanted to relax and not really engage with anyone. And then the opportunity presented itself while we all don't get those those deep life questions, those opportunities like Drew got, I pray that you would give us the first the desire to pray for and look for those opportunities. But I pray now, Lord, that you would give Mike Hall a, a further deepening relationship with Drew, whether it be through just text messaging or if they engage on the phone or if they end up somehow meeting again. I pray, Lord, that you would lead him to to you, that you would use Drew to open his eyes, his ears and his heart to find his fulfillment that he hasn't been able to find in 70 years of life that he thought would just happen by itself, by osmosis, or just some moment, some defining moment, and it didn't happen. And he's on the tail end of his life, and I pray that he would be so intrigued by the gospel that Drew was presenting that he would one day enter into eternal life. And so thank you for Drew's faithfulness, but thank you for your faithfulness that you instilled that in Drew, placed that man in Drew's life, and then now there's an opportunity to lead him to the faith. So Lord, we pray for Mike Hall and pray that you would save him, save him from himself, save him from you, and save him unto you for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. I also want to say I had the privilege last year of hosting uh, a family uh, Chinese man, uh, father and his and his little boy's boy was about four years old and we had a blast. And what I loved about it was his English was not very strong. It wasn't. But we were still able to communicate. And it was just fun to just hang out with him, eat meals with him. We had so much fun with him that on July 4th, he was supposed to go meet up with whoever, I guess, wherever everyone was going. And he decided, can he stay with us? And just hang out with us. So we just grilled and had fun. And his boy was four years old. and He tore the house up. <laughs> he tore the place up. And we loved it. We took pictures together. And I, I just thought, wow, this is an opportunity. And even though the English wasn't strong, we were able to have conversations about sort of why, what I believe and why this is. And, and I remember him saying that one day I'm going to come back to America and he said, when I do, can I stay with you again? And I said, absolutely, bro. So I don't know if he'll be back this year, but call us, sign us up. We, that, we had such a wonderful time last year. There's no way I'm going to miss the opportunity. So I'm asking you all to take seriously what she's saying because, yeah, it was awkward and stuff at first, but then it just became like, wow, thank you, Lord. Like it was fun. To just, just, it, just the interactions were fun. 
I don't want to imitate them because sometimes people can see that and be like, oh, that's messed up. But we had a lot of fun. And the stuff he was saying was just funny. And it was just fun. It was really good. I didn't expect that. I thought, all right, he can stay. He'll go do his stuff, come back. And he was like, nah, we engaged. And his son woke up. His son was a rooster. I mean, he woke up loud every morning. There was a point I was like, man, he's going to wake our boys up. I mean, he was just loud. And he was not trying to listen to his dad. So, but we had, but it was fun though. I loved it. I, even though I was like, I can't understand how you're correcting your son, but I know what that is. I got three boys of my own. He's, he's not listening to you, dad. So I said, uh, so I said, uh, we, we, I understand that dynamic. It's universal. That relationship is universal. Disobedient kid, tempted dad in any language, I understand. So. <laughs> All right, so we're going to, uh, so Carla, Carla will be back there. Carla, please, I won't be able to get to you, but put our name on the list, please. But Carla will be back there. Please get to her. It'll be, a, it'll be an experience that you won't regret. It'll be fun. I guarantee it'll be fun for you. Even if it's challenging, it's good for us to be challenged and uncomfortable sometimes. We're too comfortable. We're too comfortable. That's what American Christianity is. Be comfortable until you get to eternal comfort. And it's like, uh, biblical Christianity is be uncomfortable to receive eternal comfort. So let's be uncomfortable a little bit, even if it makes you that way. All right, lastly, before we get into this, I, I really did sometimes I, I wish that certain things everyone could experience. So I just want to say I really wish the majority of you were a part of the sports talk group meeting I'm in. I think it is. A, there are many men in this room who are a part of this group meeting. I, I tell you what, Stephen A. Smith, Max Kellerman, Skip Bayless and Shannon Sharp got nothing on this group. Dudes in here argue over every sports point in the world, except, I mean, dudes will argue over how to spell baseball. It's the most fascinating thing in the world. So if you want this, I, I'm, I'm charging $2 to just take a peek at what happens, and then I'll point to you who said what. It is the most exhilarating, funnest, most arrogant, need to repent, self-righteous, but loving God in some sort of way group that I've ever been a part of. And I'm fascinated. I, I, I'll be working on messages and 50, 60 messages will go by. And I'll just be like, you know what? I need to get it. I need to. So I'll just scroll through and be like laughing, 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 laughing. Okay, he needs to repent. I'm going to follow up with him later. <laughs> laughing, laughing, laughing. All right, he needs to go after that. Laughing, laughing. Well, I can't even believe he said that. Laughing, laughing. Meme, laughing. Oh, wow. I want to see what he says back to that. Okay, yeah, I, I actually agree with that. Laughing, laughing. Okay, Lord. We all need Jesus right now, this whole thing. So, so I, I love being a part of that group. I mean, there's many men in here who are in that. And I was about to say, raise your hand, but I don't want to condemn you. So you know who you are. And we were thinking about getting together a podcast. If we do that, pray for us. Pray for us. Because I'm afraid if I'm not dead, it might go to wayward. So, all right, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. We're going to close out the chapter today which I was supposed to do last week, but I'm a terrible preacher and just kept preaching the first point. And so we will close it out today. We are going to read a little bit. We're going to read the verse 17 through 29 today, but the primary context for us today will be verses 25 through 29. That's going to be our primary context, but I'm going to read 17 through 29 just to give us the fuller context of what God is saying to us through Paul. Now, last week, the... the I said there's a question, and then the second point would be a statement. So last week's question was, are you what you do? 
That was the question. Are you what you do? And the main issue was, I said, there's sort of a neon lights on particular phrase in the first section. It's actually in the first verse 17. So look at this with me real quick. Now, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God. So what I said was rely on the law as the neon sign of this of that, those verses. That's the sign that, I mean, that, that means a lot. And we talked about what relying on the law meant for those who were Jewish. It just meant that they found their confidence, their eternal standing, their confidence that they were going to heaven was because they were relying on the law. They had been given the law by God. And what I said was for them, they felt like because God chose us to give him, to reveal himself to us and give us the law. And the law is just simply the rules that you must live by to obey God. That's essentially what the law is. Okay, there's instructions on how to obey God. The Jews were tempted to think that because they had been given the law by God and no other people, that they were somehow better than those other people, but also that the knowledge of the law was the same thing as them obeying the law. And that's not the case. Just like for many of us, we know people who profess to believe in Jesus Christ, but then we question what we see in their lives. And that's just honest, right? We all know people who, and many of us have done that. We have relatives that, you know, someone passes away and someone asks, were they a, were they a Christian? And then you'll hear someone say this, I'm not sure. I don't know. It's rarely do I hear, yes. if it's a yes, it's like, yep. Or nope, it's like, no. Nope. But when you say, I'm not sure, it's because why? Well, they said they were a Christian, but I didn't see enough fruit. So this idea of relying on the law is, is not like we're not a we're not a, we're not incapable of relying on something to get us into heaven. So for people like that, they're relying on their profession of faith. But not their progression in obedience. So that's what we were talking about last week. So that was the question. Are you what you do? And if you rely on the law or whatever or other other things like I didn't talk about some of the other things, but there are things that we can rely on. Now, we didn't we're not Jewish. Most of us are not Jewish. We weren't born Jewish. As a matter of fact, only, the only person that I know for a fact that was born Jewish is our brother, Aaron Marcus, who's back, who's been in town for the wedding. So it's good to see that brother. Affectionately called son of Abe. A couple years ago, I named him Son of Abraham. I said, he's the only real son of Abraham in here. It's just, and of course, I'm joking because if we believe in Jesus, then we're heirs with sons of Abraham too. And daughters too. Don't hit me with that. Oh, why did you say daughters? I didn't read the Bible written was a certain way. Don't, don't put that on me. But many of us weren't born. So we weren't looking. We weren't relying. Our confidence isn't relying on a, that God chose us and gave us knowledge of how to live. That's not what we find our confidence in. But, but we don't need to find our confidence in the law because we rely on other things. We rely on things like our emotions. We rely on our emotions. So we rely on our intellectual ability. We rely on how we think and sort of our ideologies and our philosophies. We can rely on our good deeds. I mean, how many times have you heard someone say, well, I'm, you know, I'm a good person. Like, I, you know, I don't do this stuff. I, you know, do all this good stuff. I, you know, I'm not, I've never hurt anybody. And that's not true. Right. <laughs> that's not true. There's not one person I think that has ever not hurt anybody uh -huh. except for maybe Jesus. Yeah. 
And even then he did, he just didn't do it sinfully. He hurt people's pride often. I don't know if it's possible because you can't tell me when you were a kid, you didn't hurt your sibling by pushing them down because you said it's not fair that they got something you didn't. Right. You don't know that. But people will say, oh, I haven't hurt anyone. I don't steal. I haven't committed a murder. And, oh, great. <laughs> Glad you have not. Thank you for not killing people. But there's this there's this sense that I rely on my interpretation of good works and somehow that's my confidence. We can rely on all of that stuff. We rely on on other people. You know, I know Christians who live vicariously through other people's obedience. You live vicariously through them. Like we said this last week, someone, I think it was during the Q&A, we talked about somehow it came up like if I were to fail, fall, disqualify myself or do something sinful as a pastor, if it makes you fall away from the Lord, then your confidence was falsely placed. Your confidence should not be in any leader. Yes, you want us to be faithful and we have flaws and things. No, no one is trying to live a double life here. But if I were to fail, your confidence, this church has to stand because I'm not the Lord. I'm just I'll, I've come and I'll go. And this church, the people who believe in Jesus, faith surpasses circumstances. And faith is not connected to leaders. Yes, it's my, my, my job, Mike's job and other people's job to encourage you, to remind you to tell you these things and to have a spur. But if I were to fail like it, that means you're relying on me. Please don't. Please don't. Because I can tell you, I'm not relying on any of you. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying that. I'm saying the feeling should be mutual. I'm not saying it. Like when I stand before the Lord and give an account, I'm not going to be like, well, I set up, you know, I asked Carl to do Sunday school. And he did a great job, Lord. Like, what is that? I mean, what, is, what am I talking about? I'm not relying on anyone. Right, right. If I get asked, why should you go to heaven? I'm going to be like, well, gee, him. Amen. Because I, I hoped I believed in him unless you tell me otherwise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hope that that's why I'm relying on Jesus. So, so when we hear these things rely on the law, we can rely on other things. And to be honest with you, most of our struggles are we do rely on other things. Yeah. People rely on their finances or what they're good at. You know, in the biblical times, they assumed that that when you had money, when you were rich, it was a blessing from God. So it was a clear sign you were saved. So when Jesus one time said it's easier for a camel, which to them would have been the biggest animal that they were in constant interaction with. I don't know if you've ever seen a camel up close, but they're not small animals. These things are big like they can. I can sit on their back and after a while they'd be like, all right, man, you got to get off. But 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 they can handle me a camel. I might not like the bumps, but the camel can handle it. And Jesus wasn't talking. It wasn't an analogy. He was saying it literally is easier for a camel to go as big as it is to fit in the eye of a needle. As small as a needle is. It's easier for that to happen than for the rich to be saved. And he said that because he was like, when you have a lot, you don't need a lot. There's this, there's this assumption that I rely on my financial status and I have money for this lifetime and the lifetime beyond. I don't need God. It's much harder to believe when you feel like you don't need anything. This is why when I went to India, it was so different because people wanted prayer for everything. And over here, you can't have a prayer meeting. 
because you just don't need God. Prayer is like it's not as quick as a as a type. So we rely on many things Well, the Jews relied on the law and they felt like, well, because we've received it, we're better than other people. And by receiving it, we're keeping it. So the question was, are you what you do? And the answer is no. The point that Paul was making was no, you are not. You're not what you do because you rely on the law and you don't keep it perfectly. You boast about God, but you don't live for him. You are supposed to instruct people, but you don't follow your own instructions. So we're going to read now. We're going to get to the second half of what this is. So last week was a question. Are you what you do? This week is a statement. Last week I said he was destroying in some senses what it means to be a Jew to build them back up into what it really means to be a Jew from God's perspective. So let's start in verse 17. But our primary passage today will be 25 through 29. And he says this. Now, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and know his will and approve of the things that are superior, being instructed from the law. And if you are convinced that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having the embodiment of knowledge and truth in the law, you then who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach, you must not steal. Do you steal? You who say you must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob their temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision, this is actually the first time he brings this up in the letter. Circumcision benefits you if you observe the law. But if you are a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? A man who is physically uncircumcised, but who keeps the law will judge you who are a lawbreaker in spite of having the letter of the law in circumcision. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision of the heart is of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. And we'll get into this so we can make sense of it. I'm sure for many of us, we understand what he's saying here, but let's let's zoom in and make sense of this. Now, in order for us to really understand this, I have to make an assumption that the understanding of circumcision is not common among everyone. So it was, let me start with this. It was not uncommon at one point on some level, at least the Jews had every right to think of themselves as God's people because of circumcision. So it wasn't like they were just arrogantly thinking of something. It was something happened that made that have to change. But there was a point where circumcision before Christ meant something different to the Jews than it should have after Christ. So let's start with what it meant to them before Christ. In order to go there, you don't have to turn there, but if you want to. But to understand that, I'm going to talk from Genesis 17 for just a few moments and explain sort of where did circumcision come from and what were the, what, what, why did it exist 
and who did it exist for? So if you have a Bible app, it should be easy to turn there. If you don't know where Genesis is, it's the first book of your Bible, Genesis 17. If you don't want to go there, then repent and, and, and believe in Jesus. <laughs> now, you don't have to. I'll just read it. All right, this is I'm going to read 14 verses and then I'm going to quickly explain what this is so that circumcision will make sense in light of what he's saying, because there's an understanding that the Jewish people had of circumcision that we must understand before we understand clearly what he's saying in Romans chapter two. So this is Genesis 17, beginning in verse one. I'm reading from the CSB translation. He says this when Abram was ninety nine years old, the Lord appeared to him saying, I am God almighty. Live in my presence and be blameless. I will set up my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell face down and God spoke with him. As for me, here is my covenant with you. You will become the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I will make you the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful and will make nations and kings come from you. I will confirm my covenant that is between me and you and your future offspring throughout the, their, their, their generations. <clears throat> it is a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And to you and your future offspring, I will give the land where you are residing, all the land of Canaan as a permanent possession, and I will be their God. God also said to Abraham, as for you, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations are to keep my covenant. This is my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, which you are to keep. Every one of your males must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, every male among you is to be circumcised at eight days old. Every male born in your household or purchased from any foreigner and not your offspring. Whether born in your household or purchased, he must be circumcised. My covenant will be marked in your flesh as a permanent covenant. That's important. My covenant will be marked in your flesh as a permanent covenant. If any male is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So this is the introduction of circumcision. It's the introduction. Now, there's no real circumcision is essentially God is commanding that all males cut a piece of their anatomy off as a sign of their belief in God and that God is their people and connected to a covenant, a promise that God made with Abraham. So circumcision is connected first to this covenant. Think of a covenant as sort of a contract between two parties, one greater, one lesser. And the greater covenant, God, the greater party, God says, listen, I'm going to make you my people. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make many nations and kings come from you. Like you're going to be you're going to be the origin of this major movement in the world. I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to give your people a particular land. And I'm not going to get into this right now because that will be in Romans four when we get into Abraham. But then it mentions a singular offspring that's referring to Jesus Christ. 
that Paul brings up in Galatians 3, but I'm going to save that for Romans 4. So, so God is promising that I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. I'm going to make you, kings will come from you. Your impact on the world is going to be significant. I'm going to do all this for you. Here's how you respond. As a sign of this arrangement, I want you to cut the foreskin off of the males, eight days old, or if you purchase a male, even if he's an adult, he must be circumcised. He must be circumcised. That physical action must happen because that means that you are submitted. Whoever's among you, male, has to be submitted to this contract I'm making with you. And by just Abraham, by extension, all those who kind of come after him. So ultimately, circumcision was about God's contractual arrangement with Abraham to be his God and the God of his offspring. Circumcision was a physical action that represented sort of a metaphysical interaction. By metaphysical, it just means uh, separated from the physical, above the physical. So God is not he's not a human being like 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 Abraham, like what Abraham was here. And Jesus became a human being. But ultimately, God is something above human beings. It's metaphysical. This is a metaphysical interaction where God himself has said, I'm going to be the God of you and your people. So this physical action represents you believe this to be true. And those who do this after you are saying, I believe that this is true. If you do not do this, if they do not do this, and they're saying they do not believe that this is true, and they're going to be cut off from the people. The children that he's speaking of, though, would not just be an ethnicity. Look at verses 12 and 13. Throughout your generations, every male among you is, con- is, circ- is to be circumcised at eight days old. Every male born in your household or purchased from any foreigner and not your offspring. Whether born in your household or purchased, he must be circumcised. So it didn't matter if you were of ethnic, if you were born or if you were purchased, you are submitted to this covenant or you will not be a part of God's people, God's plan. So circumcision was essentially an outward expression. It was an outward physical expression that said we believe God. But here's the challenge. If males were to be circumcised at eight days old, they're not going to know any different. My children were, my three sons were. They don't remember that. I was there. I was there because I was like, I want to be there. You're going to hurt my son. I need to be there. So I was there. And they cried and I hoped that my voice comforted them. And it was over. If you're a baby and you're born, that happens. Well, that you don't have knowledge of. It's kind of like if you grew up in the church. Your testimony is sort of like, well, I've always gone to church. But if you get saved later on in life, well, you see a difference between what life was like outside of Christ and what life was like in Christ. So you kind of see it a lot clearer. But when someone grows up in the church, they just have different challenges. Like by God's grace, my kids will not have my testimony. I do not want Santiago or any of my kids to stand up here and talk about they went to prison. They sold drugs and did stuff just like their dad. But now they're saved because you didn't grow up the way I did. 
I'm trying to protect you from those choices. I didn't know. I knew who God was hypothetically when I was a kid, but not in the way that they do. So if you grow up, if you, that happens to you as a kid, then what? Well, see, this was the big problem. See, this was the problem that the Jews did not get. You see, circumcision was to be an outward expression, a physical expression of what was going to happen on the inside. You see, it wasn't just, hey, you're circumcised, you're good. That was only part of it. It was an outward expression of what was to be happening on the inside. And the scripture proves this to be true. If you're quick enough, turn there. If not, just listen. Deuteronomy 10, 14 through 17 says this. The heavens indeed, the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, as does the earth and everything in it. This is Moses, the last letter in the Pentateuch. He's, he's reminding those who are going into the promised land things that are true about what God says. And he says this, verse 15, yet the Lord had his heart set out on your fathers and loved them. He chose their descendants after them. He chose you out of all the peoples as it is today. Therefore, circumcise your hearts. And don't be stiff necked any longer for the Lord. Your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great and mighty, all inspiring God, showing no partiality and taking no bribe. You see, he says, circumcise your hearts. These people were already physically circumcised. So he's saying circumcise your heart, that that physical expression, that external expression is supposed to give you the, the, the wisdom and with knowing God's law, supposed to affect the way you act from the inside. Deuteronomy 30 verse six says this, the Lord, your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants and you will love him with all your heart and all your soul so that you will live. Jeremiah 4, 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. Men of Judah and residents of Jerusalem, otherwise my wrath will break out like fire and burn with no one to extinguish it because of your evil deeds. So the physical circumcision was not all that it was supposed to be. Circumcise your heart. Just like the children who got dedicated a few weeks ago here, or even if you're even if you're Presbyterian and they 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 baptize babies, there's still a sense of well this should this is supposed to lead to a, a life of faithfulness. That's a different theological topic. Me and Carl were talking about that yesterday. I'm not gonna get into that. But the circumcision of the heart is significant before God. Now, the difference between the flesh and the heart has been made clear to the Jewish people. And if it wasn't before Jesus came, after Jesus came and after the resurrection, it became clear. It became clear in Jesus's teaching and through the teaching of the apostles after that. That Jesus, circumcision and the law, which is the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments and just the way to live, are connected. But Jesus has come and fulfilled the law perfectly. If you didn't know that you were supposed to keep the law perfectly, well, now you know. So before Jesus, okay, all the sacrifices when you sin, you know, get some bulls, get some goats put some blood on the altar, give it to the priest, do all of that stuff. 
get a couple of birds, cut them in half. Do what you got to do to get yourself right before God. Go to the priest. He'll do that. Day of atonement. Priests make sacrifices for the whole nation. Okay, after Jesus. All that stops now. All of that stops. Because Jesus fulfilled the law. And then was the sacrifice for sin. No more animals, no more blood being shed. Now it's different. It's different. It becomes something different. Jesus obeyed the law perfectly. So now we have to have faith in him. If you rely on the law now, you're saying I can do it perfectly. That's what it means after Jesus has come. If you're saying you rely on the law now, now you're saying you can do it perfectly. So if you rely on your, your intellectual circumstances now, if you rely on your finances now, if you rely on your personality now, if you rely on uh, 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 other aspects of your life now, that you're saying that those things are more important and more important to God and more pleasing to God than him sending his own son to die on your behalf. So if you rely on anything else other than Jesus, you are saying to God, judge me by what I rely on because I don't have confidence in your son. I don't have confidence in Jesus dying on the cross. I trust my understanding. I don't even know if all that stuff it means anything. I'm trusting my intellectual ability. This is what the age of enlightenment was, the age of reason. It was, wait a minute, the mind is greater than faith. This is what this is. I'm an atheist. Okay, cool. You are relying on your intellectual understanding of what it means to live in the world and what the world is about. So when you stand before God, that's what you're going to be judged by. That's why I become serious. After Jesus, and, and what's ironic, in Acts 17, Paul kind of alludes to this. He's going to a group where they're mostly philosophers, mostly philosophers. And he's explaining to them, look, OK, you have all these altars here and there's one to an unknown God. And let me explain to you what this unknown God is. And he and he makes this point. He says this, that, OK, up to this point, God has kind of forgiven the ignorance of people. He's kind of overlooked the ignorance of people. But now that Jesus has come and made the truth very clear. And then now that he's died on the cross and taken the penalty that you deserve, God is not overlooking anything now. Now that he's come, worship and faith and obedience must be, I believe, in Jesus because he was the only one that could, was able to keep the law perfectly. If I say I'm relying on anything other than Jesus, I'm saying that that standard is enough to please God. And that's offensive to God. It's offensive to God because he gave his son. You ever given someone a gift and you could tell by their response they don't really like it? <laughs> you, ever, you ever really thought through, like, let me buy this person something. Let me try to be thoughtful. Remember that phrase, the thought that counts? That doesn't exist anymore. The thought that counts doesn't exist. Let's just be honest. If you give a gift, if you get a gift that was thoughtful, the first thing you're going to say is, man, you could have just gave me a gift card. You might not say that to the person. You might be like, oh, oh, wow, okay. So, so what is it? If you ever ask that question, then I know you don't like it. You say, well, what, what does it do? Oh, oops. When I, was, when I was younger, I used to always buy my family these crazy gifts. I'm sure I told you this before. I'd buy them these crazy gifts. And one day, one year I bought, for Christmas, one year I bought my mom this 
it was like, uh, what was that store called? It was one of those technology stores, but it was on the street. It was in F Street. I was walking around F Street looking for gifts. I was always a last minute shopper. Like Christmas was always the 25th and I'm going to get started on the 22nd or 3rd. So I went and I bought my mom this plant that like kind of lights up or something when you do it because my mom likes plants. And so I thought, oh, she'll like this. And so when I gave it to her and she opened it up and she said, Cease, what is, what is this? And my mom is not real. If you think I don't have no cut cuts, my mother doesn't either. So I get it from her. So she's not going to pretend if it, she's like, Cease, what is this? I've known this woman my whole life. So I could tell by the question. The manner in which it was asked, the tone of voice, and the facial expression. She didn't like this gift. So I just said, I didn't even say what it was. I just said, Ma, it's a thought that counts. And she said, okay, then give me back the money I gave you, and let me give you this frame right here, this picture frame. Then it hit me like, no, man, I got to give my mom a gift that she wants. Like, we've all given or received gifts that we don't like. And the person who gives you that gift, they'll play it off too, but they might have their feelings hurt. Unless it's a joke. Unless it's that, what is it, white elephant? Or what is that? that what's the, when you give a gift that you were given, is that what it's called, white elephant? Okay. So what is the black elephant then? Never mind, that's a different company. So, so that might not be one, but we're going to make up one. But the black elephant is when you gangster, when you give it to him, like you take this. So, but you get your feelings hurt. You know what I'm saying? You give someone a gift, you were thoughtful, you give it to them, they don't like it. Okay, it's a gift. Jesus Christ is a gift from the Father. He's a gift. Jesus is a gift from the Father. And so God gives Jesus to say, okay, none of these people in the earth will ever live according to your standard. So by default, you could send every person to hell because they disobey you consistently. So Jesus says, I will do it. I'll take the punishment. And then you forgive everyone who believes in me. That's the gift. When you reject that gift, God says, okay, then I'm going to judge you based upon what you rely on. Earlier in chapter two, people were relying on their conscience. God can judge you based on your conscience. How well did you even keep your own conscience? So Jesus changes everything. He changes everything. Before Jesus it made sense that they thought about the law this way, even though they had the scriptures that corrected that understanding then. But it made a little bit more sense after Jesus. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense. So having said all of that, let's look at this passage again and see what this is. See what this is. Verse 25. He's going to destroy what circumcision means in order for them to be really circumcised from God's perspective. Let's read this again, 25 through 29. Circumcision benefits you if you observe the law, but if you are a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become, has become uncircumcision. So let me explain that. Here's what he's saying. Circumcision is good if you observe the law. It means if you actually do it, if you keep the law perfectly. If you observe the law, if you keep the law, then it works. You did it. But he's being hypothetical. This is sort of a philosophical kind of way to go about it. Because he's saying no one can keep the law perfectly. You can't do it. So he says circumcision benefits you if you keep the law perfectly. But if you break the law one time, then you're a lawbreaker. And your circumcision is now your, it might as well be uncircumcised. Because you, didn't, you weren't able to keep the law. That's what he's saying in verse 25. 26. So if someone who is uncircumcised, meaning like a Gentile, someone who's non-Jewish, 
If someone is uncircumcised, if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? So in other words, he's saying, so you have the physical circumcision, but if someone who doesn't have that but actually obeys God and loves God, will not his obedience be greater than your physical circumcision? Will not his obedience, his love for God, surpass the physical action that happened to you when you were eight days old? That's what he's getting at. So you mean to tell me God's going to look at your circumcision as more significant than his obedience and say, well, he's not circumcised, so that doesn't matter. That's what he's trying to get you to. He's trying to get them to think. Are you serious? Are you serious? Verse 27, he says, it's a man who is physically uncircumcised, but who keeps the law will judge you who are a lawbreaker in spite of having the letter of the law and circumcision. The letter of the law is essentially just describing like the Ten Commandments. You understand what the what God has said. You have the letter of the law. You know what it's told you to do. See, the problem with the letter of the law is that the 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 Ten Commandments and all of the, the law in the Old Testament, it doesn't change your heart, though. All it did was tell you what sin is and what you need to do, but it doesn't change your heart. That's sort of the external law. It doesn't change anything. You can say to someone, hey, don't do that. And then they do it. And if you in, in certain situations, having the knowledge of it doesn't work. If I say, hey, that's a busy street out there. Make sure you look both ways before you pull out. That's the letter of the law. Look both ways before you pull out. That's different, though, than if you're listening to music and you just pull out like it was a good service and didn't see that truck coming. Well, you weren't obeying the law. So he's saying, look, the letter of the law, knowledge of it is different than doing it. So if someone is doing it, do you think from God's perspective, even if he doesn't have the physical act of circumcision, do you think that God looks at his obeying him? Versus you not obeying him, but you know to obey him as you're better than him. Like, are you serious? That's what he's trying to get them to see. Then he says this in verse 28, for a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Oh, this is a shock to those who are hearing this letter for the first time. A person is not a Jew who is one outwardly. What? Well, this is the foundation of who we are. Remember in verse 17, it says, we, you boast in God. You see, knowledge of the law will make you talk about God. But it doesn't make you obey God. It makes you talk about God. So this is a person is not a Jew, verse 28, who was one outwardly. And true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. Now we're getting at something very serious, much deeper. From God's perspective, your being a Jew is not just your ethnicity. Yes, there are ethnic Jews, absolutely. But from God's perspective, he wants Jews who obey him, sort of what you would call a spiritual Jew, if you will, versus just an ethnic Jew. It's not the same thing. Yes, you have the ethnicity, but you lack the humility. 
the faith to follow Jesus Christ. So what he's saying is, look, a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly and true circumcision is not something that's visible in the flesh. When God talks about circumcised, he's talking about what he said in Deuteronomy 30. Circumcise your heart. What he says in Jeremiah 4, cut off the foreskin of your heart, you stiff necked people. In other words, live according to this love God. It's, it's ironic that David is called a man after God's own heart. How many people are called that in the Old Testament? Because even though David sinned, his heart was circumcised. That's why he could write these psalms. His heart is circumcised. So what he's trying to get the Jews right here to see is like, listen, don't have confidence in your ethnicity and the physical act of circumcision. Because eternally, that's not going to save you. If you're a Christian, don't have confidence in your profession and your attendance and your giving in and of themselves. Because you can look godly on Sunday all the time. We have no idea how we how you live for real. Like, don't I, you, listen, there are people in here who struggle with their maturity and they sometimes compare themselves to other people. And they'll sometimes tell me, like, man, I just see this person that they just look so. And I just say, you know, don't compare yourself. You have no idea what's going on in their lives. You really don't know. You really don't know. There are Sundays, man, I've sinned against my wife in serious conflict Saturday night or Sunday morning and still had to preach. And I'm on my game. But I know that when I'm looking back there at my wife, she knows the truth. You didn't live what you were preaching yesterday. So listen, don't measure maturity by people's hands up and their expression on Sunday. They may be fighting through depression or anything else just to lift them hands up. They might be fighting through unbelief or maybe serious sin that you know nothing about. Your confession, your serving, your giving by itself, you cannot rely on. You must do the work of faith when you're not here, when you're not in D group, when you're not serving in a way that people can see you. I mean, think about it. there are to be in leadership, to be a pastor, there are things that you all believe to be true about us that if it were different, you wouldn't follow us. You all have an assumption about my maturity, about Mike's maturity, even though we have clear weaknesses, you see them and you accept them because you love us and you firmly believe we want to honor the Lord. But if you found out that I was beating my wife or doing a bunch of stuff, you couldn't follow me. Perception is only perception. Now, I didn't say that to say I'm not doing that. I'm making a point. So don't go home and be like, hey, you need to start talking to Betsy real quick and see. That's not my challenge, by God's grace. But I'm making, a, I'm making an observation that you cannot compare yourself to others. You have to rely on Jesus Christ. I remember this last thing, I, when I was a new Christian, there were leaders that I really respected. And then when they would, when they would confess that they fell in areas of temptation, I used to think, I used to be encouraged by that. Because I was like, well, shoot, if he fell, then I can fall too. 
it was almost like, okay, cool, that was it. But that's not why he was sharing that. And it revealed that my confidence is in this guy who I respect more than, all right, he felt I need to keep going. I need to keep going. You see, the distinction in the neon sign in this particular passage, last passage, it was relying on the law was the neon sign. Here's that, here it is in this passage, in verse 29. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart. Here's the neon sign in this passage. By the spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. By the spirit. The spirit is connected to the coming of Jesus Christ, his life, death and sacrifice, his ascension and then his giving the spirit out to be preached and to be and to obtain for the spirit to remain in people who belong to God. So when he's talking about the 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 circumcision is to be of the heart and by the spirit. That's connected to faith in Jesus Christ. It's not just this Gnostic, mystical, like the force. I mean, some Christians treat the, the, the Holy Spirit like the force, like he's the force. Like he just flows through all things and you just have to tap into it. And some people have them and some don't. And some people think that way. You wouldn't say it that way because it sounds absurd. There were times, though, I was like, all right, I want to see if this thing will move for real. If you haven't done that as a Christian, then I, 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 I can't trust you. Right. <laughs> I've thought like, Lord, make this thing move with you. I've thought that before. I am trying to do it now, actually. <laughs> I am trying to do it now. You caught me, man. I was in the moment. The spirit of God, the spirit is Jesus. It's not relying on intellect, emotions, good deeds, money, personality, popularity, it's relying on Jesus and your obedience is when when no one sees it, God does. That's what the end of verse 29 is. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. He's not talking about your praise. He's talking about God's praise of you because everyone is not going to see your faithfulness. Everyone's not going to see that. People aren't going to see your sacrificial giving. People aren't going to see the prayers that you're praying. They're not going to always see what you're resisting to honor the Lord. They're not going to see your contrition when you fail. Sometimes, but most times, your walk with the Lord is primarily going to be seen between you and him. Because you two are the only ones with you all the time. The only ones. But the spirit relies on Jesus. So to sum up, here's what he's saying. You are what you do if you rely on the spirit, on Jesus. Then you are what you do. If you rely on the law and by the law, replace that with other things for us. Money, circumstances, personality, finances, whatever it is, good intentions. If you rely on those things, then you're not what you do. And remember this, the praise from is from God, not from man is really important. That's an important phrase. Now, you could read this and say, well, then what was the point of circumcision? What was the point? Why did God have men mutilate a part of their anatomy? What was the point of it? 
It seems like it was pointless then. No, it wasn't. And here's why. He'll tell us in Romans chapter three. He'll tell us in Romans three why circumcision is not unavoid. But it won't save if you rely on anything else besides Jesus, besides the spirit. It's not going to save you. And I, 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 I want to say this one thing. I, I'm going to develop this more in, in when we get to Romans four. But I, but I just I think it's amazing that 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 the the covenant, the con, the contractual arrangement between God and, and Abraham that led to. The Jewish, um, those were, who were ethnically and, and who were brought into sort of the Jewish world. Was to cut themselves physically. And one of the reasons why we rely on Jesus instead of instead of that. And why the Jews are supposed to rely on Jesus instead of that, because Jesus didn't just cut a part of himself as a covenant. He cut him whole self. Jesus fulfills that that circumcision, the, the physical action. It wasn't just like, hey, let me just do that. Yeah, he did that because he was Jewish. But what he did physically transcends far beyond that. When you think about 39 lashes on the back ripped open, you think about nails that go into your flesh. Then you think about after he's dead, a a soldier comes and sticks a spear in his body just to make sure he's dead because Pilate is surprised that he died that quickly. Well, the only reason why he did, because he was experiencing the full wrath of God. Who can handle that for a couple of days? So Jesus's body was broken. That nullifies just a part of your body that only males were supposed to do. This is a serious reality. And it was a serious problem and can be still in the Jewish nation. Ask son of Abe, he'll tell you. Ask Aaron. So here's a question that you must ask yourself, that I ask myself. What are you relying on? What are you relying on? We know what the answer is. I'm not asking you what's the answer. I'm asking what's your answer. Do you rely on other people seeing your obedience and that being enough? Do you rely on a position in the church? As if that somehow means it may mean something to you, but if my praise ultimately comes just from the church and I failed. If I get no praise from God, then that means he knows that all the stuff I was doing wasn't genuine. It wasn't genuine. Do you rely on other people? Other teachers of the law, other teachers of God's word. 
We live in a culture where you have access to hear the sermons and get a small picture of the lifestyle of men that you respect. We, we live in a culture where you go to conferences to hear particular people speak and you, and you have, you hold them sometimes in more authority than your own pastors. And I'm not even talking about our church, just to create the Christian culture we live in is you'll go to conferences and hold with those men say, who don't know you, who don't pray for you, who don't counsel you, who don't do anything. And you'll hear them preach and you'll teach them as if they have more authority than the men and, and the people people who serve you consistently. And then when those people fall, you hear all this, oh my gosh. It's like, well, what are you going to do? Who are you relying on? That's the real question. If you rely on Jesus, no matter what happens, it doesn't mean you won't be unaffected. Sure, we're affected. But we keep moving because our hope is in the Lord. Because, you know, the other thing that and the most damaging thing, I'm going to pick up on a little bit of this in the next passage. The most damaging thing that we actually do and we don't mean to, we rely on our own obedience. And you know how I know? Because when we fail, we remove or we distance ourselves from God and we tend to think he's really upset at us and we can't approach him. We can't pray. We get condemned. We feel hypocritical and all this stuff. And you know what that means? You're relying on your own obedience. And you think that somehow God's love for you was directly tied to your obedience. That's next time. For now, let's pray. Sometimes you do have to rely on the technology a little bit. But. <laughs> Father, I pray that you would, you would help us to be people. Let me go to the... Uh, I pray that you would help us to be people who rely, who don't rely on whatever the law is for us. The law can be any of the categories that I named or ones that I didn't. It's, it could be exhaustive what we can rely on. But we are, even though this is written to those who were ethnically Jewish, who were confident of the law being given to them and them being chosen and that ethnicity and all of those things being a major factor and you being their God and their people, we can rely on things other than you as well. Like I just stated, even our own obedience but I pray, Father, that you would help us to learn how to rely on you for Jesus. Jesus changed everything. He changed everything. And I pray that you would help us to be people who rely on the spirit, not people who other people affirm. Yes, we love moments like Worthy of Honor, where we are able to encourage people specifically for the grace of you that we see in their lives. But ultimately, ultimately, we're encouraging people because we believe they're relying on you. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to be people who rely on the Spirit and to grow in that. And by that, it's not mystical. It's, it's very practical. I pray that we would be people who obey you when no one's watching but you. 
that we make decisions when no one's watching but you. And when we fail, that we still have confidence that we can approach you. Just like I'm a father to my kids and they fail every day. They could get a spanking every day. And I still love them. They're my boys. I love them and I kiss them and I love them. You love us even when we fail. I pray that you would help us to rely on your word that is inspired by your spirit and to rely on the promises in your word instead of our emotions and how we feel about those promises. Help us to rely on what you said, what you inspired by the spirit meant to write so that we could use that to help us to persevere. May we be. May we be people who rely on your word. We are not exempt from living as if we are circumcised Jews of the Old Testament. Confident of confession, aware of knowledge, but no pursuit or satisfied with mediocrity in our pursuit. Help us to rely on your spirit for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen.